can borrow at two and a half percent, then you're like, oh, I want to go borrow some money. I want to go get a house. So because of the low interest rates, the demand for houses went up and a lot of people began purchasing homes. Welcome to Getting Money Right, a show dedicated to helping you achieve financial freedom through education and inspiration so you can be free to pursue your true life's purpose. We are your hosts, Leo Sabo and David Thompson. And on this episode, we're going to pick up where we left off in the last episode. If you've not had a chance to listen to that, we encourage you to go ahead and listen to it and then come back and listen to this one. What we talked about in the last episode is related to our economy. Are we headed for a crash? What are some of the indicators that we should be looking at so that we are prepared for whatever happens? Now, no one knows the future, but we're going to touch on the real estate market and look at some specific indicators that could indicate a potential outcome. Will it go down? Will it go up? No one really knows, but I think the indicators that we will look at and discuss today will help you to at least be aware of what is going on so that you can act accordingly. So if you're ready, let's go ahead and jump into it. So there's one more area that we want to talk about, and this is the the housing market and how that has a potential to actually bring this house of cards down. Um, so just a few stats here. 2.6 million household as of this month are in forbearance. Okay. And now it, it was 4.3 million at the beginning of the pandemic. So right after 4.3 went into some kind of default, whether it was 30 days, 90 days, or actual forbearance, where you asked the bank to allow you to not make a payment for X amount of months, as many as 12 months or potentially 18. So 2.6 are still in that situation, 2.6 million. 3.5 million are 30 days delinquent. So 2.6 are in actual forbearance some kind of agreement with the bank, hey, mm-hmm. um, with the mortgage company saying, I can't pay for a while. 3.5 million are 30 days delinquent and 2.2 million are at least 90 days wow. or in serious delinquency. Now, here, here's where this, where this matters. The typical supply, according to the National Association of Realtors, the typical market for housing has to have six months of inventory in order for prices to be reflecting what's true value for homes. Mm-hmm. Once it goes down, Supply and demand increases the cost of building, the cost of sales, everything. And that's what we're experiencing here in North Texas, right? right. The house, house property values have gone up. And as a result, somebody tries to buy a house. There's only a two-month supply right now. Two-month supply. So that means that we're, we're as far as homes are concerned, on a, on a number scale, we have about a million homes that are on the market right now, somewhere between 1 and 1.2 million. Mm-hmm. It should be around 2.2 million. Wow. So we're about a little over two months. We should have six months. But here's what's interesting. Once the forbearance ends, which, by the way, about a million households will have their forbearance end between March and April. So a million homes will have to have either their loan renegotiated or they'll have to sell their home. Now, what's different now than it was in 2007 and 8 is that people have more equity in their homes. Remember uh, what happened in 2008, the reason it crashed and why the whole, the whole economy crashed because of the housing market is because of the subprime lending. Mm-hmm. People were buying homes with no money down or refinancing their homes at 120% rather than at 100 or 80%, meaning that they were actually taking more money out of the house than the, what the house was worth. So people were just tapped out. There was no equity. So now everybody dumps their house on the market and nobody can, nobody's nobody buying buy it, it because, right. because 
hey, if, if I owe $150,000 on, on my house and I put it up for sale for $150,000, but nobody's willing to pay more than one hundred and twenty because that's what the house is actually worth, now I have to come with $30,000 to closing. Mm -hmm. If I don't have it, I'm stuck with the house. So what happens? I either foreclose, bank comes and takes it, or somehow I got to rework out this deal with a bank and hope that I can maintain it and get back to, to normal. Well, what's different today in the, in the housing market is that people actually have equity because of the rising cost of, mm -hmm. of homes. Uh, people have built in equity, right? So what's going to happen when these million people can't renegotiate with a bank mm -hmm. and the bank is not willing to put whatever amount they didn't pay at the end of the loan. Some will, some won't. Right. And when they won't do that, and not all of them will be able to do that, by the way. And so if they don't, then what's going to be the next thing? They're going to put their house up for sale. Right. Because they're not going to want to lose that equity. So, but here's the human factor. People are going to wait until last minute. They're mm -hmm. going to try the renegotiating the loan, all of that. Yep. And then when everybody's turned down or majority is turned down and can't do it, then everybody's going to dump their houses on the market at the same time. So you're going to go from a two-month supply to potentially an eight- or nine-month supply, which is going to then drive the prices down. And that's, again, housing market is a huge part of the economy. Right. Huge, because it's not just the buying and selling of homes. It's the new builds. It's the construction workers. It's the lumber. It's the materials, all of that. So it has a significant... I mean, 2008 happened simply because of the housing market. Mm -hmm. That was the major reason it dropped the way it did. So... The whole point is here, the housing market has a potential to bring some significant kind of payment due yeah. uh, because there's so many people that were allowed to stay in their homes, even though they couldn't afford it, Yeah, right? They lost their job, but government stepped in and said to the banks, you can't do this. You can't kick them out. You got to give them the ability to stay there and not make a payment. That was the CARES Act mm -hmm. of last last year. Right. The CARES Act said you cannot kick these people out for six months. Right. And then, and extended, then it. it extended another six months. Right. So that was from March of last year till March of this year. Mm -hmm. So there are, like Leo said, 2.2 million homes that are seriously delinquent mm -hmm. over 90 days. Even half, of, even if half of those. Right. De go delinquent, you're going to have a million homes go on the market very quickly. Yeah. And it's going to bring that supply from two months to six months, like literally overnight. And as it does that, that's going to change things. Mm -hmm. Now, if I'm out there trying to buy a house, I no longer have to bid, you know, for one house, I've got 15 bids. Now I've got six houses to choose from. Yeah. And guess what? I'm not going to buy six houses. I'm only going to buy one. <laughs> so you those other five yeah. are, are in trouble because they can't sell it. Right. And if they're in forbearance and potentially pre-foreclosure, you're going to see a little bit of what happened in 2008. Some people will lose their homes. Some people will be able to sell them. But it's going to change the market and it's going to increase that supply, which is going to drop the price. Mm -hmm. So, And then, of course, the, the new home sales, that might reduce if, if inventory is up. Homes, you know, new home sales may not be as lucrative as, as and as sought after as they are right now. Right. So that's going to reduce even the new home build. So now, you know, everything's going to begin to drop because it is supply and demand. When there's too much demand and not enough supply, prices go up. When there's too much supply, then obviously the prices can go down because, hey, I've, I've got my pick. Right. Well, and so let's just zoom out again real quick. The demand went up because the interest rates went very low. Mm -hmm. And when you can borrow money for 30 years at two and a half percent, whereas most people that I had talked to were in the 4% range or 5% range, right. 
if you can borrow at two and a half percent, then you're like, oh, I want to go borrow some money. I want to go get a house. So because of the low interest rates, the demand for houses went up and a lot of people began purchasing homes, especially now interesting. This is a sub market, but in North Texas, Mm -hmm. a lot of people are leaving California and Illinois and Illinois and some of these other states. And they're coming to Texas because the economy is good here. And that also adds to the demand. Now, that's just a little sub market, but across the board, the demand for real estate had gone up because of low interest rates. But now we're about to see a shift where the supply will go up because the people who were not selling their home because they had forbearance and they had been protected by the government for a year. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about this in the past, but when I say protected by the government, that means they're not paying their landlord Mm -hmm. for a year. Right. That means that they're not paying their bank for a year. I mean, yeah, that's protection for the individual. And I'm not saying that that's entirely wrong, but man, if you're the person who owns the home and you're not getting paid for a year, that's pretty offensive to me. I'm like, really? So, so the government has done a lot to try to make those people whole, but, but this is creating a big problem here. And if we see the supply, all these houses come back on the market and we'll see what happens. We don't know until the end of March and mid April, but if all these homes come back on the market that are delinquent, even half of the ones that are seriously delinquent, mm-hmm. that would dramatically increase the supply, which means that demand will not demand will still probably be mediocrely high, well, but some supply markets, will go so much yeah, higher. And in some markets like North Texas, it may actually just make purchasing home much better and easier because right now it's really hard to find one, especially if you're not willing to pay the higher price. But in some markets, it'll actually almost completely kill everything. Because they're not, they're, right now, some markets are not uh, low supply. You know what I mean? Right. They have a decent supply. Right. Maybe they're not way above, not way below. Maybe they're four, five, six months. So the prices are reflective and saying, okay, well, it's not too bad. It's pretty, it's pretty good right now. But if it's affecting the housing market in that area mm-hmm. with people, again, forbearance and, and uh, delinquencies, then you're going to have a market that's going to infuse maybe another two or three months on top of a five, six month. Wow. So now, again, it, this this affects the price. Um, you think of, on a very, very, just to give you an example we're talking about, if you go to any retailer, let's say you go to Walmart, and let's say they bought a batch of sunglasses, mm-hmm. and they've got a billion of them, and they got to sell them at all their stores. And let's say they bought them for a $1.50 a piece, and they want to sell them for $2. Okay, but if they're not selling them at $2, because there's other retailers out there that are selling them a dollar sixty, they're going to sell theirs at one fifty five. Right. They're going to undercut and they're going to sell them because they they need to get rid of them. Holding on to them only costs them more money. So this is the same thing. People who put their houses on, on the market, they don't just do it just to see what would happen. Ninety nine percent of them want to sell their home, and when they're not selling, guess what? They're going to start lowering the price because they need to get out of it, especially if they have a delinquent situation with their, you know, with their mortgage company. So. It's just going to happen. There's nothing you can do. This is just the way it works. Yep. When you have too much, people will drop the prices. And whether you like it or not, you may be one saying, my house is worth more than that. But if everybody else in your neighborhood is dying to sell their home to, to capture some of their equity, well, guess what? They're going to lower their price, and that's going to bring your price down. Yeah. And you can hold on, but only to, the, to your own detriment because you might actually lose the home if you can't make the mortgage payment. Yeah. So, I, yeah. I have a friend that I know who 
has been un- unable to pay for their home for a season, mm-hmm. and they've just been waiting it out to see what's going to happen. A lot of people have done that, actually. Yeah, and, and I'm just saying this because I know somebody that is in the middle of doing that, and at the end of the day, they're going to have to sell that home mm-hmm. because they can't afford it, and it's going to go on the market. Yeah. So uh, this is real life. Yeah. I know people that are experiencing this. Uh, I- I've seen this play out. And it'll be interesting to see what comes in the next three to six months. Mm-hmm. So I think a basic recommendation is is if you can, now is probably a good time to wait in the housing market and see what happens because we just don't know. And it's a little bit too risky to, if you're going to try to buy a house today, I would probably wait two or three months because when these at homes, at least, yeah. when these homes come on the market, it may lower the price of houses. Now, if you're trying to sell a house and you really are tr- trying to get out of your home, maybe right now today is the best time. Yeah, it probably, yeah the sooner the better. Right. If you have any inclination that this is not going to work out or if you have a job that hasn't come back, you're not making the kind of money, you know, restructuring a loan, you know, it, it, the banks aren't going to be favorable to restructuring a loan unless they can guarantee you are going to be able to pay. They're going to treat your uh, application for that like either a new purchase or a refinance. They're going to look at everything. And if you don't qualify, they're not going to give it to you because they know, well, we're not going to let you stay in here because we know, we can look at the numbers and know you're going to have a difficult time paying for it. So you could do that, Matt, yourself. Mm -hmm. You know what you're making. You know what you can do. And, and you can even do a little research to find out how does the bank make a decision? What percentage of my, my income needs to be toward a house? How much debt will they allow? All of those things are information you can plug into a quick calculator and figure it out. But yeah, it, it's, it's not going to be easy for somebody who's in that position to stay in that position. So you're probably better off selling. Now, what's, here's what's difficult. And again, it comes back to the emotional side. People who want to buy a house, they want to be in a home. So it's an emotional decision to a degree. People who have a home, they want to lose their home. That's emotional. Right. But at the end of the day, you have to allow some of the math to guide you to make a sane decision rather than just hope for the best and you know, mm-hmm. maybe the government will do something else. The government's going to run out of cards to play right. eventually. Now, that might take another year or two. I don't know. I'm, I'm always surprised because every single time there's economic downturn and something happens. If you look at the history that David touched on, it seems like every time we have one, it's a little less time between drops and, and you know, recovery. Re- recovery. Yeah. And that should tell you something. It's not a natural progression. It's something that's being manipulated to happen. And uh, those are nice if you can make a buck on the way up, but wow, not, not a way the economy is really going to work long term. Yeah. Yeah, I guess looking at it, the recommendation for the end of this would just be to say, if you're if you're invested in the stock market, we'll start there. Um, I, I still continue to think you need to have a long term investment strategy if you have a long horizon. Now, mm-hmm. say you're in your late sixties, seventies, you don't have the same length of horizon, no. so you need to be more conservative. But if you have a thirty year time horizon, the length of investing that you're planning to do then you just need to keep doing dollar cost averaging, which is where you put in you know, the same amount every month, month over month over month over month. Uh, let's say it's 500 bucks a month. That's $6,000 a year. 500 bucks when it's going up, 500 bucks when it's going down, 500 bucks when it's going up, 500 bucks when it's going down. You're going to buy a lot of stock when it's cheap and you're going to buy some stock when it's expensive. But over the course of 30 years, if you go month by month by month by month, 
then it will even out some of these ups and downs. Mm -hmm. So that's dollar cost averaging. Uh, continue to do that. The All the investment research has shown that over the course of 100 years, the last 100 years, over twenty uh, over a twenty year time horizon, the market has never been negative. Mm -hmm. So as long as you have more than a twenty year horizon, then you'll do better than putting your money in the bank. Exactly. You know. So how much you'll get, nobody knows that. Right. But but ultimately, we we have to invest. We have to be able to take advantage of that compound interest. Otherwise, our money just diminishes over time. Right. You know. Yeah, so so we don't really have real. a choice. If right. we're going to invest for the future, we have to find some ways to do it. Whether you do that through stocks, whether you do that through real estate through real or estate. other ways, yep. um, you have to think of it somehow. But this is why we wanted to talk about this today, because if you're going to build wealth in a healthy way, in a non, you know, super uh, risky and, and, you know, buying stock and hoping that tomorrow it's double, we're not talking about that. We're talking about a long-term horizon. And if you can do that, and, and just stay committed to that, you're going to see these ups and downs. There's nothing you can do about it. But what you can do is understand what's driving the market. Understand what specific things are going to make the market either rise or go down. And look at what the government's doing. Look what the Fed is doing. And all of these things can help you to have a better understanding of when it's time to save and wait and when it's time to buy, to get in, to take advantage of an opportunity that's there. Because that's, you know, that's what being financially uh, wise and having this information will allow you to do, is to understand what's happening and not, not allow the emotional side of things to drive you. Because mm -hmm. that's really important. I mean, yes, we're all emotional beings. We all worry about the future. We all want to do our best. But there are things that we can look at and learn about. And we hope that this episode and others like it just gives you that insight. We're no experts about the economy, but we know enough to be able to kind of see what's happening so that it doesn't take us a direction where we actually could take a significant loss because we're just not un unaware mm -hmm. or uneducated. So, Well, and the other thing is with all these indicators that we talked about, uh, 2021 could have some kind of crash in it mm -hmm. and, and it may be 2022. Or it may be 2025. Like you never know when the next crash will come. Right. Uh, but it could be 2021. So what you want to do is continue your dollar cost averaging, you know, for the next 30 years. That's your baseline. But you also want to increase your emergency fund mm -hmm. so that if things do go south, you have the ability to sustain your lifestyle for six months or more. Because if you lose your job, you need to be able to have that money there. The other thing you can do is the money that you have set on the side. Now, I wouldn't do this with your emergency fund, but if you can go above and beyond your emergency fund and build an investment fund, like Ken Green talked about in our last episode, when the economy crashes, that is a great time to invest. Mm -hmm. So Leo and I want you to be aware, uh, just like I was waiting last year for the market to go down 30 40%. And I was then going to take some money that I had in my investment fund and pour it in and mm -hmm. buy some investments. Now, admittedly, I missed it. I missed it because I missed it. There was a day when it was at negative 35. I missed that single day. And it immediately went to 25% where it was a negative. It had kind of recovered some. And I thought, no, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait till it gets back to 30. I'm going to wait till it gets to 40. So I missed that opportunity there. And a lot of people took advantage of it and made an extra 20, 30%. It was yeah. kind of awesome. Yeah. But I would say have your investment fund ready so you can take advantage of the crash when it comes 
and then honestly plan for the next crash 10 years from then and the next crash 10 yep. years from then because yeah. the the economy is going to crash ever so often due to emotions and so if you can begin to build that investment fund on the side on top of your emergency fund on top of your dollar cost averaging monthly investments now i'm not saying that's easy if you're in the place of paying off debt the best investment that you can do today is paying off debt mm-hmm. you know not paying 15% on a credit card is the same mathematically as earning 15% on a stock. Right. So so pay off debt. This is about seasons of life. It's our four foundational principles. This all fits together. But I love this episode because we really got to dig into some of these indicators that you should be aware of mm-hmm. for the economy, for the housing market, and things to be looking at in the stock market. So let me just share one more thing. I think this is important because we've shared a lot of stats. We've shared about what we believe is happening. And again, these are all things that we think are going to happen, well, we don't know for sure. Nobody really knows, and we said that before. But ultimately, we have to make decisions based on what we know, but also having some standard principles of operation. That's the way I would like to think of it. So number one, don't park all your money. David said it. You, you have to stick to this dollar cost averaging. Now, if a big crash comes, you'll probably take a bigger loss than you're comfortable with. That's the case for all of us. But because we don't know the future, parking your money, waiting for that big crash is not the right way to go because you're going to miss it. Uh, Like David said, he was hoping it would go down 50% and it didn't. He missed the bottom and he missed that opportunity. All of us will get that wrong more than we will get it right. So it's really important that we don't park our money. Now, I heard Kevin O'Leary, which is one of the people on Shark Tank, Tank, and he was doing an interview and the guy was really pressing him to share like, okay, so you're in cash. How much of your portfolio is in cash? And he actually said it was 20% because he thought that there's opportunities ahead to purchase when things do go south. So even a guy like that, he's not parking all his money and he's got a lot of it. He's just parking part of it. Now that might be a lot of money for him, but still, if you just relatively 20%, that's one fifth of what you have. If you felt like, okay, I think this is going to happen, there's a lot of indicators that says so, and you wanted to take that gamble because it is a risk. You don't know. None of us do. Then take some of it, but don't take all of it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so that's the idea. And Kevin's in the market all the time. He, yeah. he is a, an investor. That's his full-time that's job. That's what he does, right? He loves watching what's going on in real estate, and he loves investing in businesses. And so... You know, I think of myself as Mm -hmm. a full-time pastor. Right. My focus is somewhere completely different than the financial markets on a day-to-day basis, just personally. I I still check in, but I don't, I'm not watching it every single day. I'm looking at other stuff. That's not your full-time job? It's not my full-time job. Mm -hmm. And so, so when I thought the market was going to drop 50%, if I had been fully invested and paying attention mentally, then I could have seen that the government was dropping in trillions of dollars of bailout money. And mm-hmm. I could have realized, oh, maybe it won't drop as far as I thought it would. And I maybe could have taken advantage of it at the negative 20%. Mm-hmm. But I missed it because I'm not I'm not sitting there watching the market every day. Yeah. So, so part of this is that we're speaking to you. I like that Kevin has 20% of his money in cash ready to take advantage of that. Uh, that's that's something that I think is valuable is to have some money on the side to take advantage of a dip in the market or mm-hmm. a, to buy a, a real estate that's um that's on sale somewhere. That's right. great. Right. I think you should do that, but you shouldn't park just like Leo said. I'm just reiterating. Don't park all your money waiting and hoping for a crash because it may not crash, 
And then you'll have just missed out on 10% increase, 20% increase, whatever it is before mm-hmm. you mentally decide to jump back in and you'll have missed all that increase. So uh, it's because we don't know what's happening. And right. the other thing that I think is important here is this fear of missing out. Yeah, that's huge. That's what people it's are... It's what drives most people. Yeah, that's what's driving people right now. And there's two big problems there. Fear, mm-hmm. that's the Never base of it. a good reason to make decisions. Fear is the worst reason to make a decision. You want to make financial decisions based on our four foundational principles uh, of spending on purpose, saving before you spend, increasing your margin, investing wisely. Mm-hmm. We don't start investing quickly out of fear right. before you have saved before you spent, you know, before you had your plan in place. So if you're like, oh, I just got to go buy a house today because everybody else is buying a house, Mm. it's A, operating in fear. It's B, operating in greed because you're worried about missing out. Right. You see other people getting something or doing something. You say, I'm going to go in really quickly. Both of those are the wrong way to do it. The only time that you, especially I'm talking about houses and and in this market, Mm -hmm. I hear a lot of people like, I want to go buy a house. I'm like, that's great. Yeah. Have you? Do you have a budget? Do you have twenty percent down payment? Yep. Uh, have you paid off most or all of your debt? Because that's going to go into the factor of how a lender even looks at you. So you've got to have the foundations in place before you go purchase real estate. Mm-hmm. If you buy real estate, especially the risk right now is that it's super and not super inflated, but that it's inflated. Yeah. Because everybody's trying to buy right now. So inventory is low. There's not a lot of houses on the market. So the prices are going up and up and up. But as soon as more inventory comes in, then prices may alleviate and become normalized. You would hate to overspend by 10 or 20% in a Mm -hmm. hot market when you weren't ready based on fear of missing out. Yeah, I remember. I'll give you a real life example. My sister was looking to buy a new vehicle when it came out. And I forget what it was. I want to say it was like either a PT Cruiser or a Mini Cooper or something like that. They just advertised them. Everybody thought, this is an awesome looking car. I want one. Well, they only had a couple at a dealership where my sister was living in, the, in Chicago. So she went to purchase one. And she went there and she looked at the sticker price. The guy said, it's gave her the price. And she's like, but the sticker price is $2,000 less. Oh, that's because we, you know, we don't have enough of them and they're really, really hot right now. And she just looked at him and was like, are you kidding me? Like, That's the sticker hilarious. price is this much. It's I right don't even here. want to pay the sticker price. And right. you're telling me you're going to add two grand to it? And the guy just shrugged. It's like, That's what people are paying for it. She's like, Not this person. Yeah. But, but here's the reality people will pay. And you just said it because there's a supply and demand problem. And people are willing to pay $10,000, $20,000 more. But here's the thing you're never going to see that money, at least not in the short term. You won't see that money. How long will it take for you to make up that over? expense because house prices cannot continue to climb and climb and climb there's always adjustments there's always dips there's always seasons where things kind of come back down to what they're supposed to be really valued and i question anytime everybody's running in the same direction i question the wisdom of that i read somewhere that people are paying twenty thousand dollars above asking oh yeah i've seen 40 and i just think why would you do such a thing because you would have to see an increase in the price of that house of maybe 10, maybe 5 to 10% immediately to just recuperate, just to have the value of what you paid for it. And I, I just don't think it's reasonable. And bottom line is, not only does fear of missing out make you potentially buy something you can't afford, it violates one principle that I always have, which is don't buy unless you're ready. Yeah. And this goes back to, do you have the finances to make this purchase and not overextend yourself 
Is this going to fit your budget? Have you even looked at what you can actually afford? Because that's the problem. Whenever we are guided by the fear of missing out or the greed or the, gosh, I don't want to miss out because I may never be able to afford a house. Listen, calm down. This is not the end of the world. It's not the last opportunity you'll have to buy a house. You'll have another opportunity. And my my suggestion would be, let all the people who are crazy about getting a house right now, let them overpay. You'll probably have a chance to buy it at a much lower rate at some point in the future. That's that's my take on it. That's so good, Leo. So where, where can people go to spend more time with you and see what you're up to? They can come over to leosabo.com where I have some resources that are free and you can benefit from some of the work that David and I have worked on and some resources that we've developed. And I hope you'll take advantage of that. Part of what we're trying to educate you on is how to have a strong foundation for your finances. Those tools and some of the teachings and some of the blogs and content that, that I've developed and in conjunction with David as well are things that we are giving to you so that you can build that foundation. So take advantage of it. It's there. It's for your taking. There's videos. There's content you could download and resources you could use. Yeah, I always recommend people over to Leo's blog because I've sat down and just read through so much of that. And and when you sit and you process and you think through some of the wisdom that's there, uh, it changes the way you think. And Leo, in our course that we're teaching, we talk about how if you change the way you think, it will change your behaviors, which will lead to a change in your outcomes. Yeah. And so honestly, I'm, I'm just speaking to our audience, a big compliment to Leo. Leo is so deep in how he writes and what he writes that it will start to shift the way you think about money. And, and it's so important to have this change to a healthy, healthy money mindset. And so check out Leo's blog, uh, come visit me at stewardshippastors.com and check out some of the tools and resources we've got there. And also just get ready, get ready for the Getting Money Right course. Uh, Leo and I are taking five families through it right now. We're having a lot of fun going through the beta version. We've been teaching on investing, we've been teaching on uh, credit scores, we've been teaching on how to get out of debt and just living on a, a really good financial plan. And we've got tons of good tools and resources all of this is coming together really nicely. We're mm-hmm. really excited about it. Uh, we're creating extra additional uh, resources that go around the course that people can use to really have a full lifelong financial plan and join a community that that is actively pursuing good financial principles in their life. So uh, I'm just I'm just giving you a heads up. I'm hoping that you're salivating a little bit thinking about this idea of jumping into the Getting Money Right course uh, as we continue to build it. It probably won't come till later on in the year, maybe towards the end of the year, but we are we are actively building and we are seeing some good fruit already. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. We look forward to having you join us next time so that together we, we can, can keep, keep getting, getting money, money right. this fear of missing out make you potentially buy something you can't afford it violates one principle that i always have which is don't buy unless you're ready yeah and this goes back to do you have the finances to make this purchase and not overextend yourself mm-hmm.